The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Well, good morning, church. I want to welcome everyone in the name of Jesus, especially to our visitors. And we have visitors. They're not really visitors to us, but they're visiting from far away. Our missionaries, Brett and Kelly Shrek. Where are you guys? I saw you early. All right, you got to do it. They always made me do it when I was a missionary. Come stand up. They got to know where you are so they can love on you after church. Brett's like, thanks, I've gotten enough love. Don't. We're so happy you guys are with us. And I think, Brett, you're going back, I heard you say you're going back tomorrow to Rwanda, but the family is staying for another month. All right, awesome, welcome. We've been in a series in Acts, the Spirit-Powered Church. We finished up in the fall uh, a series in the Gospel of Luke and the Spirit-Powered Gospel, and we've gone is Luke is two volumes. Luke and Acts are a part of the same narrative. And so we've been in Acts, the Spirit-Powered Church. We have this Sunday, Easter Sunday, which is next Sunday. The following Sunday, Brett is going to finish our sermon series in Acts, the Spirit-Powered Church. And then we're going to begin a new series in the month of May. Brett and I are going to be gone at the beginning of the month. Both of uh, Brett and I, along with the Geyers, are going to be in Greece on a mission project. And so we're going to begin a sermon series with guest speakers over the course of about eight weeks on the fruits of the Spirit. And the sermon series is going to be titled The Spirit-Powered Life. So we're moving from the Spirit-Powered Gospel to the Spirit-Powered Church and then how the Spirit powers and powers your lives through the fruits of the Spirit. So Jim Dvorak is going to kick us off the first of, of May. And then some of our speakers, to name a few, are Charles Ricks is going to be with us. Uh, we're going to have um, uh, Jeff McMillan is going to come and preach on the Spirit-powered life. Our very own Kelly Osborne is going to come and talk about the fruits of the spirits in our, in our life. Uh, John DeSteiger, president of Oklahoma Christian, has agreed, and he's going to come and, and preach in this sermon series. And then we have uh, uh, another speaker who the youth Many of you who've gone to Winterfest will know. You might not know him by name. His name is Tommy Woodard. And do you guys know who he is? He is one of the skit guys. So you probably don't know about the skit guys, but the skit guys are famous among our youth. They do a comedy uh, routine. And so I've asked Tommy Woodard to come in. He's actually from here in Edmond. His daughter is in my class at Oklahoma Christian. So... I hit him up to come preach on the spirit, the fruit of the spirit, joy. So it'll be good. So this morning, though, we are in Acts chapter 27. And before we read, I want to ask you guys to bow your head and pray with me. Father, as always, your word is our life. You spoke the world into existence and we found ourselves alive. So from the very beginning, when we read your word, we know this is life. So today, as always, we pray for ears to hear and hearts to follow and bodies and spirits willing and ready to obey. And God, this morning, I pray for the gift of preaching. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Acts 27, beginning of verse 13, says this. 
Paul had been arrested in Jerusalem. He made his appeal to Caesar, and so they put him on a boat. And when a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted. So they weighed an anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before long, a wind of a hurricane force called the Nor'easter swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave up. Uh, We gave way to it and were driven along. And as we passed, as we passed to the lee of, of the small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make a lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes underneath the ship itself to hold it together, and fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Sardis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw cargo overboard. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. I find that last phrase striking, that they gave up all hope. Several commentators have talked about contemporary culture, and one of the things they said that the, that the church has not been very good to catch up on yet is to say the primary, the primary concern of modern contemporary life is not of fear, Although there is fear, there's enough fear to go around. The primary concern in contemporary life is not guilt or shame, although there's plenty of guilt and shame to go around. They said the existential concern in contemporary life today is despair. And many have pushed back against that. It's like, there's not that much despair. I mean, yeah, maybe you look globally, but some commentators have said, wait, but if if you want to understand, you have to understand there are two kinds of despair. One, there's overt despair. Overt despair looks like this. Overt despair looks like poverty. 80% of the world's population lives on less than $10 a day, and 11% lives on less than $2 a day. And every day, 22,000 children will die from poverty-related issues. I had a friend, I was teaching at African Christian College last summer. And we were talking about ministry in Africa. And we were reading a book. And it was on African ministry and theology. And one of the things that the book mentioned, he talked about a definition of theology is faith seeking understanding. It's a very classic definition, right? So when we talk about God, talking about God is our faith seeking an understanding of the world and God and who we are. And a good friend, a student that was in the class, he said to me, he said, his name was Vuyo. He was from South Africa, actually from Iswatini, formerly the country of Swaziland, and he said this. He said, Ben, that phrase, faith-seeking understanding, that fascinates me. 
But I would say in Africa that theology is not faith seeking understanding. He said, I think in Africa how you would define theology or talking about God is faith seeking survival. My eyes got really big and I wrote that down really fast. Because I'd always understood theology as faith seeking understanding. And for an African who's part of the 80% that lives off of less than $10 a day, and then many who are part of that 11% that lives off of $2 a day. And I did not know one Ugandan that was roughly in their 30s or 40s, 50s or 60s or above, that had not lost a child when I lived in Uganda. That's overt despair. You could even talk about the United States. In Oklahoma City, it's estimated that five to 6,000 people experience homelessness each year. In 2017, Oklahoma School District, they estimated they, ju- they had just over 5,000 children enrolled who had experienced homelessness at some time during that school year, 2017. Oh, just over 5,000. 94% of them were what's called how, uh, couch homelessness, which they didn't have a home of their own. And they were living with a relative and living and sleeping on a couch. And we thank God that they had somewhere to stay. But if you didn't have a home of your own and you were living on someone else's couch, despair might set in as well. So it may be poverty or homelessness or injustice or experience of violence. Those are overt pictures of despair. But the commentator said, if you're not experiencing that, here's what you may be experiencing. There's overt despair, then there's covert despair. And some people have said that part of what's happening in America is this repression, this repression of our own fears, our own despair, which comes in the form of consumerism or obsession with our bodies or hunger for status and power or hope that's reduced to self-pampering. I think the hope of the American dream has turned into a kind of pressure. We've been talking about this at Oklahoma Christian. We still perpetuate this idea about the American dream that you have to be secure and have to have success and live comfortably and be happy. And what's happening more and more is our students are feeling the pressure to have that unspoken dream. Substance abuse, mental health issues, violence. Those are often the result of cracking, cracking under the pressure. Trying to repress the despair that faces them. And cracking under that pressure. But it's just not in that. We live in a society that's more connected to each other than in any given time. Our technology gives us the ability to connect with people all over the world, 
all the time at any moment. Yet here's what we're finding in the research and particularly at the university level with college students is there's more isolation and loneliness than ever before. You've seen it. If you may be too old to experience this, but you've seen a bunch of people in a room on phones interacting with someone over the phone, but not with the people who are sitting right next to them. Several years ago, in the early 2000s, there was a book by Rick Warren. You guys will remember this book, I'm sure of it. It was a bestseller. It sold 32 million copies, and it was on the bestseller list for 90 weeks. Anybody want to guess what that book is? The Purpose Driven Life. There was something about that book that hit a nerve with a culture that seeks meaning and purpose that's struggling with despair. I ask my students all the time, your friends, what do your people in your age group struggle with the most? What is it that consumes them the most, like big picture stuff? And it never fails every semester. They don't say fear, they don't say guilt, which is what an, an older generation might have said. They always say the same thing, meaning and purpose. That is our biggest concern, is meaning and purpose. And the lack of meaning and the lack of purpose ends in despair. Paul experienced despair. We don't really read about it overtly his own feelings of despair in Acts. We actually have to go to 2 Corinthians, which is written about the time that Paul is experiencing a lot of the trouble that he's experiencing in Acts. And in fact, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 8 through 9, it says this, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the trouble we experienced in the province of Asia, which is where he is. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received a sentence of death. Paul lets us in. In Jerusalem, they're arguing over whether Gentiles can come in or not. And then he's in Philippi, and they beat him for healing a woman and then throw him in prison. He's in Thessalonica, and the Jews become jealous of Paul, and that he's converting people over, so there's this great mob that forms in Thessalonica against him. Then he goes on to Corinth, and there's a dispute. They accuse him of breaking the law, so they send him to court in a court hearing. Then he goes on to Ephesus, and he's ruining their business of selling idols, the god Artemis. And this great riot erupts where they're in the, they're in the amphitheater and they're, they're shouting. Paul has to be escorted out of the city. And so 
you can imagine what Paul is feeling, but in 2 Corinthians, he actually tells us what he was feeling. He says this, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. We'd been felt like we had a death sentence. This is deep anguish and despair. But it's not just the overt things that he's experiencing. Paul actually experiences quite a bit of covert despair as well. Because finally, he gets all of these churches together to round up a bunch of money because there's a famine or there's, there's trouble going on in Jerusalem. So they're going to take an offering all these Gentiles and the Gentile churches, they're going to take an offering to the mother church, to Jerusalem. And many have speculated this is, this is the thing that Paul, probably in his ministry, was most excited about. He writes about it in Romans and he writes about it in 1 Corinthians, how they're going to take this offering to Jerusalem because it is through the Jews that the Gentiles have received the grace of God. And so it's appropriate now that they in return give back to the Jewish church. Yeah, I can deal with all of those problems, but this is what I came to do. Reconcile Jew and Gentile. This is the mission God has given. So he goes to Jerusalem. And the gift doesn't even really come up in the text. Paul shows up and it says they welcomed him and Paul talked about how he was converting lots of Gentiles. They say, yeah, praise God for that. But, but Paul, we got a little bit of trouble here. There's been a lot of Jews that have believed in Jesus. But the problem is there are many here that here have heard things about what you're doing. They're, they think you're telling people to break the law of Moses. And so there's a big, big concern here. So here's what we want you to do. We've got four men that have taken a vow. If you could take go with them and pay, you know, for their valving, have their head shaved, and then you can also do the purification rites with them. That way, everyone can see and feel comfortable with who you are and what you've been doing. So Paul brings this, this gift, and they say, yeah, but here's what we really want you to do. Go to the temple and cleanse yourself. So Paul agrees. He goes to the temple. He cleanses himself, only to turn around, and it says some of them, turned against Paul and they threw him in prison. They actually tried to beat him and the authorities rescued him and they threw him in prison. He stayed in prison two years presumably, presumably just twiddling his thumbs. And so all of this overt all of this overt despair. And then finally he gets to do the one thing which he thinks God has sent him to do and even that doesn't go well for him. The thing that gives him meaning and purpose, he brings this gift and they throw him in prison. We were under great pressure. Far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired of life itself.
But in Acts 27, it says this. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have, never, you should have taken my advice and not sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of God, who's I, uh, of, the God who, 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 of the God whom I serve and whom, who, who is my God stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men. For I have faith in God that it will happen just as you told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Paul has this vision, and it says before he, that, he, that he tells them about this vision, it says, after the men had gone a long time without food, this is a sure sign that one, they were under great pressure far beyond their ability to endure, and they despised of life itself. There was food on that ship, and you could read about it just a few verses later. They weren't eating because they were out of food. Maybe two reasons. Maybe because when you're in despair and anxiety has taken over, Sometimes doctors will say there's a loss of appetite because all the acid in your stomach is moving and churning so much you just don't feel hungry. But then psychologically they say sometimes people don't eat when they're in despair because their mind is so preoccupied with the thing that is before them they literally forget to eat. And so Paul has this vision. And he says this, I've had this vision. There's an angel, the God whom I serve, he came to me. He said, take courage. You're not going to perish. And all on board are not going to perish. He gives them reason to hope again. Because he says, my, God, my life is in God's hands. And because you're with me, your life is in God's hands. Then he invites them into that life. He says, none of, the, none of you on this ship is going to perish because of the life of God. And then they're all swept up into God's mission through Paul. Because Paul, God has a mission for Paul that he must go see Caesar, Caesar, that he must go up here, that all of them will be saved because they're all swept up in the God's mission and his plan for Paul. And when Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about the kind of despair, that he despaired of his own life, he doesn't finish there. He says this, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province, province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. 
He delivered us from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hopes that he will continue to deliver us. Here's what biblical hope looks like. Biblical hope is always this dialectic between hope and despair. When it is authentic, when hope is truly authentic, hope always arises out of moments of despair. God did this so that we would not rely on ourselves, but on the one who raises Jesus from the dead. And my guess is this, this morning, that everyone in this room at some point has felt despair. For some of you, it's lasted a long time. For some of you, you've been in the depths of despair at times in your life. Some of you, it may be micro moments of despair. But if you're human, despair is a part of your reality. And if it hasn't hit you yet, one day it will. And the church is like Paul. That Paul is on the same boat of despair as the rest of the world is. Paul is on a boat and he is in the same shoes as everybody else on that boat at the mercy of those winds blowing. And the church, I think this is what Luke intends, is that the church is like Paul. You've experienced despair. We all have. And we're no different than the world. We sit on the same boat of despair. In fact, it was... G.K. Chesterton, that has a quote, he says this, we are all on the same boat in a stormy sea, and we each owe each other a terrible loyalty. And so as people who have experienced despair, but like Paul, have also experienced what he says about his own despair, it was far beyond our own ability, but God has done this so that we will trust him. Trust the one who raises the dead. And so Paul is able to do this, and this is what I think this text invites us to do as well. That when we are on the boats of despair with those, our neighbors, and those in our communities, and those that don't know Jesus, they share the same kinds of despair we do, that we are to give a reason for our hope. Paul gives a reason for his hope. And for you, it may not be a vision, but it may be a word like today. It may be experience. It may be the faith that God has given you. For faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And Paul in Romans says this, that hope, real hope, biblical hope is hope against hope. 
It's hope against all the things you hope for. Abraham, against hope, trusted God. That's what Romans 4 says. And the second thing we can do as Paul is we can invite others into the life that you have in God. Into the fellowship, into the breaking of bread that nourishes a life of hope. So if you go on down in Acts 27, in verse 33, it says, Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and you've gone without food. You, have eaten, you haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not, not one of you will lose, lose a single hair from their head. After he said this, he took some bread and he gave thanks to God in front of all of them. Then he broke it and he began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 people on board. And when they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing over the grain. Eating together. Inviting them into a community, into an experience that nourishes hope. So you can give reason for your faith, the hope that you have. Invite people into that life. And then the third thing is this. Be people of mission and purpose. Because God's mission has Paul. And because Paul has a purpose and mission, others are swept up into that purpose and mission as well. And we've said this over and over again. God's mission has you. Live with meaning and purpose. And as you live with meaning and purpose and you give reason for your hope and you invite people into your life, into the life of the church, into that reason, that purpose, that hope, that meaning, they get swept up into the mission. They get swept up into the meaning and purpose. The vision says, do not be afraid, Paul. Do not be afraid, church. You must stand before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. There's a strange confidence in this story. It is not a confidence in ourselves, but a confidence of a mission filled with hope, guided by faith that announces our life within the life of God. It is a confidence that dares to speak at the sight of despair and chaos, saying, God lives, and so too we live. Paul is a witness who will not give in to fear. And he invites these wayward sea workers to take hold of his faith, to take hold of this hope. The church is also a witness in a world that is full of despair. But the church will not give in to fear. The church will not give in to despair. Even when life is chaos, when we're under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, we will not give up hope. 
invite all on the ship to take hold of the hope that we share together. That's what a spirit-powered church looks like. In a world drowning in despair, that we can offer the world.